it goes back to supply and demand, where we have had a boost of more patients and providers using the GLP-1. Welcome to the On Medical Grounds podcast, where you can find an authentic, audible blend of timely scientific and medical knowledge. Today on Medical Grounds, we will be speaking with Dr. Heather Whitley. Dr. Whitley is a clinical professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the Auburn University Harrison College of Pharmacy. She is a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist and a certified diabetes educator. Dr. Whitley is well-published, predominantly on diabetes-related research. Earlier this year, Dr. Whitley spoke with us about screening for diabetes in high-risk individuals. Today, she is back to talk about some new things going on in the diabetes and pharmacy world. This is part one of a two-part series. Hello, Dr. Whitley. Welcome to On Medical Grounds. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you again. Recently, you co-authored a special report in the journal Clinical Diabetes. It was titled, Potential Strategies for Addressing GLP-1 and Dual GLP-1 slash GIP Receptor Agonist Shortages. We'd like to discuss your findings and learn more about how pharmacists and patients can cope with drug shortages. Certainly. I'm happy to help. Thank you. For those unfamiliar with medical terms, what are GLP-1 and dual GLP-1 slash GIP receptor agonists and what are they used for? Sure. Well, thank you again for having me. It's great to be here and it's a pleasure to be able to share this information, particularly as it relates to the shortages of these important and valuable products for your listeners. Uh, first, I'll start off by saying that GLP-1 and GIP are hormones that are made in your body. Every, everyone should make them. They're released from the small intestine, and they help regulate blood sugar, and then they also help regulate satiety. So these naturally produced hormones in your body helps with managing those two aspects. And they've since been developed as medications that we can give exogenously, so typically injected to help manage diabetes, mostly type 2 diabetes. And then some of the medications are also FDA approved for managing weight as well. All right. Thank you. What are the trade names consumers might recognize for these products? Okay. So for uh, the GLP-1s, and so those are the medications that are just mimicking that one hormone, that's an incretin hormone. Uh, there is dulaglutide, which is um, trulicity. There is semaglutide, and that is available as two different forms. One is an injectable form of Ozempic. The other is an oral formulation. It's the only orally available product of the class called Ribelsis. There is um, exenatide. There's two formulations of that. Uh, Baeda is the twice daily injectable. And then uh, Bidurion or Bidurion b is the once weekly injectable product. Liraglutide, and that is a once daily injected as Victoza. Um, that brand is um, FDA approved for type 2 diabetes. Asaxinda is approved for weight loss. Um, and then terzepatide, and terzepatide is a dual, uh, is the only dual GLP-1 GIP incretinomimetic, and that one is marketed as uh, Manjaro for diabetes, and it was just recently FDA approved as for weight loss called Zepbound. And then also back to um, semaglutide, 
when it is approved were used as a weight loss that is Wagovi. So we have a handful of different medications and some of them have dual indications for treating diabetes and then also um, weight management as well. Wow, that was that was quite a quite a mouthful. For our listeners, uh, I'd like you to know that we will have a, a slide which summarizes all the different consumer names and and what their mode of action is. Your new clinical diabetes special report states that we're experiencing national shortages of these drugs. Can you explain to our listeners why this is happening? Yes, this seemed to emerge around this time last year and where we just People, patients were coming to us in clinic. I work in a family medicine doctor's office to take care of patients that have type 2 and type 1 diabetes. And I had so many patients coming to clinic that were saying they couldn't access the product. We were having a national shortage and um, lots of questions were emerging about how to manage this time of lack of access. And so that's where the publication came. I wrote it in collaboration with my co-authors, Joshua Newmiller and Jin Trujillo. And we hope that that would be helpful to our clinical colleagues for them to help manage the shortages that they're experiencing. But here we are a year later, and we're still having these shortages. And we're still having these questions surrounding, well, how do we manage these, um, these challenges? It seems like it goes back to supply and demand, where we have had a boost of more patients and providers using the GLP-1 and dual GLP-GIP receptor agonist class, which is great. These are fantastic products. They have a handful of benefits that we can provide our patients. And it's expanded beyond just those with type 2 diabetes to also include patients that are wanting to facilitate weight loss, which I think that's where that increased demand is coming from. And I honestly believe that we didn't, the manufacturers didn't quite expect the boom that we were, that we received and the number of patients and providers that want to utilize these medications and the supply just hasn't been able to meet that demand that we're, that we're experiencing. Do you think that providers and pharmacies should be able to prioritize those specific prescriptions for patients with diabetes rather than weight loss? That's a tricky question. I think it's an ethical question. In the prescriber hands, we always want to do, and the spent thing, we always want to do the best that we can for our patients. We want to provide them the right product for any given patient. And when I'm seeing patients in clinic, I'm not just prescribing one uh, antihyperglycemic for my patients, but I'm really thinking about every class and within any particular class, I'm thinking about the individual agents, talking to the patient at hand to identify what the right product is for that patient. That said, with this time of shortage, you do have to kind of jockey a bit and think about, well, what's available, what's not available. Now, at the community level, at the dispensing side for um, for the pharmacist, there's going to be a time where you only have a so so many vials or so many syringes or so many pins of a given GLP-1, but more prescriptions coming in than that. And that's a tricky situation. I can appreciate from the community side how you want to be able to ideally provide those prescriptions to everybody that, um, that has been appropriately given a prescription, but you just don't always have that supply. I think pharmacists should use their discretion when dispensing those to give them to the the right patient and the best patient, but they don't always have the 
the objective information to discern severity of the disease. For example, they might not have the different A1Cs for patients with type 2 diabetes to see someone that has a very high A1C that's uncontrolled is um, critical that we bring that blood sugar down to avoid a possible hospital admission versus somebody that is a, a better controlled level. Still, they both need them because they're using that drug therapy to manage it. And then on the side of obesity or weight management, that's a legitimate chronic disease too. And it has impact on a handful of different uh, complications that can develop from there. So um, I think it's very hard at that point of the dispensing pharmacist to discern one patient needs it over somebody else. And it does put them in a very tricky position. So for patients who can't access their antihyperglycemic drugs due to these shortages, what are their alternatives? Yeah, they're, um, they need to manage their blood sugar. They need to continue to keep it in a reasonable range for risk of um, precipitating an emergency room visit or complications that can result from that. I think it's very important for them to have open direct conversation with their healthcare providers, both their pharmacists to say, well, do you know when they're, when it might be coming in? So they have an idea of how long they might be without and then communicate that back with their healthcare provider to say, I'm without whatever therapy. This is the last time I took that product or um, I have five more doses available. So I'm, I expect that I'll run out by a certain date so that the patient in that healthcare per provider can consider other avenues of how to manage that hyperglycemia during this interval of not having that particular therapy. Just good communication and being proactive about it too. Don't wait till you run out and haven't had it for two or three weeks. Be upfront, be aware of how much medication you have available and um, so that you can get ahead of the problem. So what happens to patients with diabetes if they miss just a single dose? Well, it does depend on which GLP-1 they're using. So the rapid-acting GLP-1s like Bi-Ada, which I don't think are taken or used as often, but they will have a postprandial rise that pretty quickly within a matter of, a, um, so it's, it's a twice-daily medication. So in a matter of missing a few days, they're going to have an increase in their after-meal blood sugar values. Um, on the other hand, using some of the medications that are longer-acting therapies, particularly the once-weekly products, they're going to have um, they're going to give a dose one week. They have a whole week until they're going to miss that second dose. Those products have a longer half-life, so a longer duration in the body. So it's going to stick around a bit longer. As soon as they get the product, go ahead and administer it. If they're a few days late on that, a once-weekly product, I don't think they're going to see a profound change in their blood sugar, but certainly they are if they, they miss several weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. So what happens if they, they miss their doses for an extended period? Their blood sugar will go up and how high it goes up depends on how much, how controlled their blood sugar is at baseline and how much medication or the dose that they have to use to control it. So for example, if a patient's um, blood sugar is near goal, and they're using the low dose of that GLP-1 to control that, their their sugar might will certainly bounce up, but I wouldn't say it would necessarily, necessarily go sky high. But if they're using a high dose of that GLP-1 to control their blood sugar, 
And maybe even it's not doing a full job of controlling their blood sugar. Maybe they're still a little bit higher at baseline, that it has a much greater risk of it increasing to a point where where they absolutely are going to need additional therapy and might need to be more cautious about making sure that they don't flip into one of those concerning diseases of like diabetic ketoacidosis, where it's a medical emergency. Can you talk more about reinitiating taking these GLP-1 receptor agonists? Is there a, a stepwise dosage? How do you do that? Sure. So the most common adverse events that we see from this class of medications is gastrointestinal in nature, predominantly nausea, vomiting, um, and that happens in about 10 to 20% of people. So not all people, it's just, it's a low, moderate range. But um, for that reason, when we initiate those therapies, we start at the lowest dose. We always start at the lowest dose to allow their body to get used to that um, adverse event before increasing the dose. So when we start that dose, we increase. If the patient has been off of it for a while, when the therapy is reinitiated, they might have reemergent of that nausea, vomiting, uh, tolerability issue. So the question comes into play is if they have been on a consistent use of a higher dose that they have slowly graduated up to, and then they miss a handful of those doses, do we have to reinitiate all the way at the very starting dose again? Or can we start at that um, high dose right away and not expect to experience that gastrointestinal intolerability. So that's where the question emerges with the challenges that we're seeing with the shortage. So what, if I can give some guidance about that, um, talking talking with the manufacturers to try to find some information, which we outline in that uh, article from Clinical Diabetes, there's um, guidelines in the package inserts. But when we evaluate a little bit further, there's a bit more wiggle room. And so for me, as a rule of thumb, without like looking at the table that's available in that article, I kind of think of a patient has missed two doses or less that they can reinitiate at the dose that they were on. If they missed three to four doses, we can probably start at the step two, like not the very bottom dose, but the, the second step up in the dosing scale. And then if they've missed five doses or more, then we probably have to initiate all the way back at that starting dose, all for the purposes of avoiding that emergent gastrointestinal challenges. Mm -hmm. That's that's very useful information. Can you also interchange the different GLP-1 receptor agonists? If, if one product is available while another one isn't, can, can they pivot to a different one? Yes. And that has been a technique that I've used a lot in my clinic to help manage these shortages is I will go from, if the patient hasn't missed any doses, I will go from whatever the dose is of their primary GLP-1 to a glycemically equivalent dose of another GLP-1. So across the board, as opposed to, you don't have to start all the way down at the starting dose of the second GLP-1, but more of a glycemically equivalent dose. Are there alternative drug types or combinations of drugs which can be used in place of the GLP-1s? Yes. So certainly we have a variety of different other pharmacologic options to use when we can't use a GLP-1. And I would say you need to start by considering why you're using the GLP-1 in the first place. 
And the most common reasons to use the GLP-1 is either for blood sugar control, so that's in type 2 diabetes, for weight management, or for cardiorenal benefits, one of those three different reasons. And then selecting your alternative therapy based on that indication. So for example, if we're re- managing cardiorenal benefits, that's why we're using the GLP-1, then the only other class of medications that we could select from is the SGLT2 inhibitor class. So those are products like Jardiant, which is uh, Empagliflozin, Farsiga, which is Dapagliflozin, or Invacana, which is Canagliflozin. And there's a few other products in the class too, but those are the three that have been proven to have some of those cardiorenal benefits. If we are using the GLP-1 receptor agonist for weight reduction, likewise, that uh, SGLT2 inhibitor class is the only other class that has um, proven benefit to facilitate weight loss. And of course, there's a collection of other products that we can use for managing weight outside of these antihyperglycemic classes. And then in type 2 diabetes, if we're only just trying to manage their blood sugar, we just pick another product, another antihyperglycemic that that all have those benefits while considering what those their side effect profile is, what might work best in our given patient. It's nice to know that there are alternatives that patients can consider. Some patients are sourcing their own medications online because they can't get them at the pharmacy. What are some of the dangers of online sources of these particular drugs? That is um, not ideal. And certainly I will say that through this time of managing the shortages that we have seen with the GLP-1, no no alternative is the ideal alternative. And so we're trying to identify other avenues that we can move towards to help continue to maintain the the therapeutic goal that we're working to achieve with the GLP-1. Online sources are tricky um, because you don't always have that clear patient-provider relationship, in my opinion. I think that when you're dealing with a provider online, sometimes there's a lack of just miscommunication that can happen through the telephone or text message or or email um, beyond even video. If the product is not manufactured in the United States, which is common, but it's also not under a good manufacturing procedures, you have risk of having um, more contaminants or even getting a product that isn't what it's sold to be. And so I think as the the user, you have to be very savvy and thoughtful about where you're getting those products, where those products are coming from, to make sure that you are, in fact, getting what you're purchasing. Mm-hmm. How about uh, compounded products? We have seen a tremendous boom in the utilization of compounded GLP-1s during this shortage um, for several different reasons. One is um, it's a protein, a big bulky protein, which we cannot easily manufacture in the lab, but FDA is reasonable to compound when it is under short supply. And we've had so many people wanting to use these products, particularly for weight loss. And so they are um, looking to gain access through different means if they're not able to get them directly from the dis- typical dispensing pharmacy to get the, the, the manufacturer's variety of that product. So we have these compounding pharmacies that are um, producing these products. But I pause because if the product 
is in short supply, where are the pharmacies getting these products to make, to compound the product in the first place? So I um, pause, curious of that it's probably not the product is not coming from the manufacturer themselves. So we are seeing increased manufacturing compounding products of different salt formulations of the products. So for example, the um, manufacturer of, of Ozempic or Wagovia semaglutide, but we're seeing compounded prog- products of a salt formulation like semaglutide sodium or semaglutide acetate. That is not the version that was studied in all of the different clinical trials to bring the product to market that demonstrated not only efficacy, but safety. So there's um, some unknowns in that area, whereas a clinician, I cannot tell a patient that with certainty, we know it will have the same benefit or even the same safety profile of what was studied. There have been reports to the FDA of some um, adverse events that have occurred with using the compounded products uh, that has not been openly disclosed. I've heard conversation of just simply increase in blood pressure. And certainly we know that high blood pressure is a silent killer because of its increased risk of causing heart attack and stroke when it is very high. And so if we're adding a lot of salt into um, it that's in a compounded product, that salt is known to increase blood pressure. So I think there's a risk there, although I'm just not in a fully educated position to be able to say, well, how much salt is in those compounded products, if that is how it is compounded to be able to determine the full risk. There's a lot of unknowns currently in the area of compounded products. Um, So I recommend great caution to people when they are deciding to uh, utilize those therapies that are compounded. How do you personally manage your patient's expectations and concerns? I work with my patients to have clear and open dialogue so they appreciate the reason for why we're initiating the GLP-1 and what our ultimate goal is. Sometimes that is for the purpose of managing blood sugar. Sometimes it's for weight loss. Sometimes it's for redesigning their therapeutic regimen that will give them an overall improved quality of life because of a decreased medication-related burden. And sometimes it's for those cardiorenal benefits. So I make sure that they understand the reason why we're implementing this therapy. I tell them about risks. I tell them that the most common adverse event is gastrointestinal nausea. It's it's typically nausea, possibly some vomiting. It only happens in about 10 to 20% of people. Our patients, typically when we talk about the most common side effect, they think that means everybody or nearly everybody gets it, but that's not the case. And so I make sure I'm clear that it's only about two in 10 people that are experiencing nausea in the first place. I let them know that up front, so when it emerges, they um, they can have some ideas about how to manage it. I remind them that that nausea is typically mild to moderate in intensity, and it does go away with continued use, so that encourages them to stick with the therapy. And then I remind them of things that they can do to help reduce that risk. So typically when we sit down to eat, we're we have a perspective of how much food we need to put on our plate to to fill our stomachs. And with the GLP-1s, one of the ways it works is to improve satiety so that we feel fuller faster. 
And so it's important for patients to know that they're not going to be able to eat that same volume of food that they did before starting the GLP-1. So I might tell them to fill half of your plate instead of a full plate. Eat slowly. And when you start feeling full, push back from the table, wait a minute, assess whether you want some more food or not. And if you feel full, go ahead, wrap up that plate, put it in the refrigerator and come back to it later on. Because that GLP-1 making you feel fuller, if they continue to eat, that is when that nausea will most likely emerge. Typically, patients really appreciate having those anticipatory recommendations that they know how to mitigate those adverse events. One other thing I tell them is that these medications do not typically work fast. So the injection or the dose that they take today is not going to dramatically improve their blood sugar tomorrow or the next day, but rather it takes some time to build up in their body. That way, if they're managing and they're watching their blood sugar or they're watching their weight, they know it's not an overnight miracle that it does take some time to achieve those results that they're wanting, and that helps them stick with it as well. Dr. Whitley had much more to say about drug shortages. Tune in to part two of this series where we discuss pharmacy deserts and the pharmacist's role in patient care. Thank you for listening to the On Medical Grounds podcast. Be sure to click the subscribe button to be alerted when we post new content. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it and share it with your friends and colleagues. At onmedicalgrounds.com, we provide perks to all posted podcasts by linking content so you can drink in more if you choose. This podcast is protected by copyright and may be freely used without modification for educational purposes. To find more information or to inquire about commercial use, please visit our website on medicalgrounds.com.